Art is being redefined simply through the fact that the art world, the artists, the art market, the art buyers has become hugely more diverse. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, the podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. What does the future of the art market look like? It's a big and thorny question that cannot possibly be answered with a few simple words. From the big picture issues like how artificial intelligence will factor into business decisions and the global economic situation, to the smaller and more particular aspects, like which multi-million dollar collections will hit the block and what the expansion of the mega galleries means for the art ecosystem as a whole, there are a lot of factors at play. At the Army Show's live event last week, Artnet News' senior market reporter Eileen Kinsella hosted a panel of experts, including collector Elaine Survey, art advisor Megan Fox-Kelly, and gallerist Suzanne Vilmitter to discuss what the future may hold. Hello and welcome. Today's conversation, The Future of the Art Market, held in conversation with Artnet, will be recorded as a special live episode of the Art Angle podcast. In this conversation, Alain Survey, Megan Fox-Kelly, and Suzanne Vilmutter will join Artnet News editor Eileen Kinsella to consider key forces behind major shifts in the contemporary art market. Megan Fox-Kelly is the founder and director of Megan Fox-Kelly Art Advisory, as well as a member and former president of the Association of Professional Art Advisors. Her practice includes advising clients on acquisitions and sales of works of art for their collections, estate planning and execution, strategic planning and feasibility studies for museums, exhibition planning and administration, collection management, and fine art appraisal services. Suzanne Bielmutter is the founder and director of Bielmutter Los Angeles. Since founding this gallery in 2000, she has been committed to presenting artists from a wide range of diverse backgrounds with a focus on idea-based and political work. Alain Survey is a collector and founder of the Survey's family collection. For more than 20 years, Survey has focused on underrepresented and museum quality art, which he believes is significant and worthy of preservation. Eileen Kinsella has been a senior market reporter for Artnet News since the site was launched in 2014. She covers the international art market, including auctions, art fairs, and legal matters connected to the market regulation and related issues of authenticity, provenance, and ownership. Thank you so much for being here today. And with that, I will turn the conversation over to Eileen. Thank you so much, Zoe. And um, thank you, everybody, for being here. What a great turnout. I'm excited to be here. I think this is an exciting topic. And I'm thrilled that we have such a diverse array of experts here from a Los Angeles dealer, a very experienced advisor, and Alan, who's been collecting for quite a while. And I wanted to just start by having each panelist say a little bit about what they've been up to, what they're doing, and kind of like why we're here today and why they're qualified to discuss this great topic about the future of the art market. So Suzanne, would you like to start? Sure. <laughs> Well, I'm here because we're exhibiting at the Armory Show, and we have been very loyal to this fair for over 20 years. I'm not entirely sure how qualified I am to talk about the future, but I've been having a gallery for a long time, and I've seen many ups and downs in the art market, so I'm 
excited to be on the panel, and thank you so much for having me. Great, thank you. And Megan. Thank you, Eileen. I'm here too because of the fair and enjoyed the first opening day and seeing everything, bringing clients here. It's part of our job. I'm interested in talking about the future because my clients are constantly asking me about the future. The future is really what informs a lot of their decisions. And my own approach is looking toward the future with an eye to the past. You know, what has happened before, as Suzanne said, the art market, like any market, goes through cycles. So where are we now? And based on what we've known from the past, where do we expect we're going to be going? Or where do we hope we're going to be going? Mm -hmm. Alan? Contrary to them, I just saw lights, so I decided to come, and then they put me in front of you, so that's the reason. And it's important that I'm an investment banker in life, so I'm the guy trying to understand the world. We're trying to make $1 becoming $3, but uh, we're also trying to understand the world and to know the future. And so my approach to the art markets, which is totally different to my collecting, is different. I'm trying to understand the process. And contrary, I don't think we are in a cycle. I think we are in a radical change of the art market right now that I call a transformation from a a craft time, you know, Leo Castelli was a wonderful craftsman, like we had someone doing shoes by hand and everything. So a gallerist was, I think at the time, and Suzanne, like me, is coming from that time, to something that is becoming industrialized and where the process is more important, and particularly two important processes, the branding, sometimes the branding of the gallery is bigger than the branding of the artists. And the second is the importance of the economies of scale. Two very important elements is that doing so many fairs, having so many fixed costs, if you don't manage to spread out your costs, and spreading out your costs means that if you build the brands, you can spread it out to different cities, to different countries, to a multiplicity of artists. So it becomes an industry, and that's a massive change because the danger of all this, and that's where maybe we're going to get at one point, is that the arts, which was something creative and original, is becoming commodified. You know, it's the same arts that is the demand at one point and is repeated over and over again. So that's a little bit the basic observation I'm starting from. Yeah. One thing I wanted to kick off with was to take a little bit of a look back. When I first started writing about art, it was in the late 1990s. I was at the Wall Street Journal and they had a high bar about what you could cover about the art market. So there was a lot of great stuff going on that I was like pitching to them. They weren't quite getting unless it was like a $10 million Picasso or a Jasper Johns. Kudos to Kelly Crow because she has really carved out an amazing beat there. But over the years, it has gone from me there worrying about what to write about to just not being able to keep up with the sheer amount of growth in galleries, growth in art fairs. We did mention mega galleries that there's too much to write about. We can barely keep up on a daily basis about like what lawsuit we're gonna cover or what art fair. I'm curious through the lens for each of you how that shift has happened and how today differs than what it was when you first opened up in Los Angeles. And Suzanne has been there for over 30 years in Los Angeles. That's another question we'll get to later as the mega expansion out there. But if you could describe similar shifts in your daily routine. Of course, yeah. Just the sheer amount of activity that's being asked from us as dealers is often overwhelming. So very often I see there are some dealers here who have a booth and two other project solo booths at this fair and perhaps simultaneously at another fair. 
we in Los Angeles just opened one solo show. Then we all rushed here for the fair. When we come back, we open two more solo shows because we have usually three simultaneous exhibitions going on. Every night we go to a dinner or to a collector's home. Very often in the morning, I have breakfasts with artists. All of that is multiple times of what we used to do. It's also, from a gallery point of view, necessary to be able to stay competitive. In the very big picture, I find it difficult to think that inherently there is something wrong with a very vibrant and huge art market. It becomes more challenging to navigate it because there's so much more to see and people get insecure because they don't know. There are so many choices. What should I buy or what should I even look at? But if you look at it from a point of view of a large historical art of successful civilizations, the ones that were leaning heavily on art production and making art and looking at art and selling art were not the ones that failed. We could spend a lot of money on making war. So I prefer it this way. I think we're all sometimes exhausted and we're complaining and we don't know what to do and what to look at. But overall, I think it's maybe helpful to remember that all of this is a very good thing. I don't think there has ever been that much culture and art around us that we could easily access and enjoy and look at. And I feel strongly that is something that should be celebrated first and foremost. <laughs> That's great. And one thing I want to add to that, sometimes if people tell me that the art world is not democratic, I say, you can spend your Saturday walking in and out of galleries all day in Chelsea for free. And same thing in Lo well, Los Angeles, you probably need to drive, but you yeah. can walk in and out and see wonderful shows for yeah. not a penny. And if you don't enjoy it, there's a very simple choice for you. Just don't do it. But as I said, in a larger context, I don't feel it's something to be extremely sad about. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I would totally agree yeah. with you. And Megan? Uh, agreed. The volume has magnified and it has even more so, I think, since... 2020, when the need for more digital forms of communication in order to stay present, in order to know what Vilmeiter Gallery is, is doing, or any other gallery around the world. So the volume of communications that come in, the volume of information that comes in, can be overwhelming. But part of our job as an advisory firm is to filter and create discernment, create a hierarchy, really, of the levels mm -hmm. of information that are coming in that are relevant to our clients. And of course, Every client is different. Every client's goals, tastes, interests are different. So it's tailoring that information for each of them. But I have to agree with Suzanne that the expansion of the art market is not all bad. It is in the sense that it perhaps creates confusion. But more and more people are reading about art, hearing about art, getting emails and getting information about the art market. And more people are curious. And while definitely much of what we read about is the 1% of the 1% economically. I think that there are, again, 
lots of different levels that people are able to engage in art. It doesn't all have to be the record-breaking painting at auction that makes you a part of the art world or a part of the art market. It's engagement just like this Saturday here at this fair. Yeah, that's great. And Alan? I entered the arts without any background into it from Wall Street. Uh, I started my career down the line here in 1987. And I entered art because it kind of broadened my view of the world. Because, uh, you know, when you're Wall Street, you've got a pretty narrow view of the world. And we were not talking about money. So what changed in the last 20 years is that we only speak about money. And Megan is saying yes to me about many things I'm saying. So it's the truth as well. So what changed dramatically is the amount of money. Again, I don't like generalizations and heuristic statements about the beauty of the art and everything. The reality is the following. I made an analysis back a few years ago. I looked at contemporary art, defined as art created by artists born after 1960. In 2005, the total amount of contemporary art at auction around the world was $48 million in 2005. $48 million. I could not believe when I saw that figure. In 2008, so only three years later, the same question was $860 million. So it multiplied by 23 in three years. So it's very easy to speak about it's just more information, it's just more this. No, it happened something very big is that something happened between 2005 and 2008, is that the amount of money getting in art went from 48 to 860, I'm talking about contemporary art. This is changing everything, because before that, nobody cared about art. You know, I'm collecting for 25 years, like Suzanne, active in there too, and nobody cared, nobody spoke about art, nobody thought, you know, about reselling in many ways. You know, I attended the transformation of the art market with people like Philip Segalo, Dominic Levy, Amy Capellazzo, that brought for the very first time contemporary art into the auction house. I saw the first Basquiat selling for $1 million around 2005, and it was supposed to be a con because it was supposed to be a fake thing. So the enormous transformation that happened is that money came in and ruled. This money is coming, you know, what is very important is that art for me is nothing outside of the general society. You know, it's just a tiny reflection of society at large. What's changing society at large is the concentration of wealth. You are all aware of it, all of you here. So what happened is that the concentration of wealth among the 1% and the even more in the 0.1% grew bigger. And these 0.1% bought fancy cars, real estate, and they started buying arts. And the drama for arts was that as they didn't know nothing about arts, they bought art like they used to buy something else, which was fashionable and social recognition, which means that the art became a secondary element versus the social recognition and the investment potential. And I would like just to remind one thing, is that I came into arts following you know, a description like hans Ulrich Hobris said one day, and I really think about this definition. hans Ulrich Hobris said, arts is the best defense against annihilation by standardization. I repeat, the best defense against annihilation by standardization. The problem is that today, most of the art is commodified. It's the same. 
and I'd be simply honest. On this fair, there's so many paintings that look like the painting in the next booth that is frightening, okay? So we need to go back to a definition of art, and that is what of my difficulty for the future is, is how can we preserve arts in the context of the art market industrialization? So I repeat, I came into art to escape money, and now I'm trying to push back money out of my beloved arts. I have to agree with Alain a lot on this. Okay. <laughs> I have to agree with you completely. The other thing that we're seeing about all the information and the kind of questions that I'm asked, whether it's from journalists or from clients, collectors, etc., often have to do about money. If we look at headlines, headlines are very often about money. When we look at a summary of what has just gone on in the last quarter in the art market or this first little over a half of a year is the market down because we're measuring what happened with the auctions in May, as if that is the only measure of what's going on. The auctions in May have nothing to do with what Suzanne is doing at her gallery. It has nothing to do with the private sales that may or may not be going on from the auction houses and from the galleries, but the headers and the drivers, the sort of, sorry, but the clickbait on yeah. articles and emails and everything else, it's all about something with a dollar sign or a euro sign in front of it. Yeah, I would agree. And there is a pressure for us to cover auctions very carefully because they are really the only public barometer. Of course. Um, like we could walk around and ask prices here and get a sense of what's selling and what's popular, but it's Artnet's bread and butter, plus we run an auction database. So for better or for worse, we go to them, we track them carefully. And one of the things that Katia wrote in her column that I thought was very interesting when she wrote about Bargain City recently was that, yeah, things are down a little bit last year, but the Maclo collection is a once-in-a-lifetime collection that you're never going to see again. I mean, it was the result of a contentious divorce. Exactly. And the masterpieces they had. So it is issues of cycles and it's issues of supply and demand. So it's not necessarily, not even a negative thing, but I mean, you have Paul Allen's collection and Maclo in one year. Of course, there's going to be a little bit of a dip after that. That's my two cents about, yeah. about the auction. Yeah, but you're talking about the Paul Allen collection and... One of the big problems, and we're talking about your profession, mm -hmm. is that you started from the Wall Street Journal. So that's interesting. You came into art and then you forgot everything you learned at the Wall Street Journal. Not necessarily, no. I think you did. <laughs> because <laughs> I think I did. Um, the thing is that in the Paul Allen collection sales, the most interesting was what could we learn about the fact that art is a very bad investment. You know why? Why? Because in that sales, there was about 60 works and about 30 of them were resale, which means that we know at what price he bought them at auction. Mm -hmm. okay? So if you looked at the 30 lots of this major collector, the best of the best with the most money, and the fact that it's only his best works, because of course the shit works, he cannot sell them at auction. I mean, mm -hmm. They're still there somewhere under the mattress and you're going to have to put them on the sidewalk to get rid of them. Okay? Mm -hmm. so, I'm serious. Okay, it's only the best, okay? But in that best, in the 30 works, the average holding period, so the average number of years that you had to keep them was 15 years. It's not a short-term investment, okay? Mm -hmm. 15. And the average return you made on those 15 years of holding was something around 7% mm -hmm. on the 30 lots, okay? 7%, that's 3% under the S&P on that period, okay? So honestly... It's a shit investment. Mm -hmm. So the problem is nobody wrote about it because everybody said one billion, ah, la la, million, million. 
I mean, we deserve, and that's the problem of the profession of the art reporters, because it was not the object of this, but that's very necessary, that everybody talks about the financialization of the art markets. That's the key word, financialization of the art market. Except that the reporters are looking at it like art historians. And if they were looking at it like we do, then suddenly things would come up and they would help the public to see what is actually going on besides the big headline and the marketing of the auction house that is very powerful, that is just hiding everything, like the withdrawn lots, you know, the new fashion of taking the lots out so that the totals looks better. I mean, plus the guarantees, which makes that the evening auction is a kind of a choreographed private sale and nothing else. I mean, sorry, help us to see this. I mean, I well, see we, it. We do try to look at those numbers. I actually do monitor the withdrawn lots very carefully. And also, I've done a ton of reporting on guarantees and how much that games the market and how much speculation that in introduces. So I'm well aware of that. I try to be transparent about that when I'm covering auctions. Yeah, but I, I would like to say something in response to what you said. You mentioned that everything is about money and you seem to imply that nobody knows the real art or what art means anymore and that we need to redefine art. I would like to say something to that. I do think that we're actually in the very middle of a major redefinition of art in so far, and this is the most radical change that I have seen in 23 years, I have wanted this for 23 years, and it is actually happening now. And that is that art is being redefined simply through the fact that the art world, the artists, the art market, the art buyers has become hugely more diverse. And what that means is that that traditional understanding that we used to have of art, which was incredibly Eurocentric, it was incredibly male-centric, that through the pandemic has actually finally broken up. And there are, is a huge influx of new voices, of new opinions through social media that's coming in and flooding the market. And of course, that makes traditional positions unstable and insecure, and it should. I think this was long overdue to happen. It's happening now, and I think it is something that we should welcome and that should give us the motivation to actually go back and learn and look. And, you know, I go through the fairs, I have my long established categories, my internal categories about how to discern what is good, what is quality, what is it that my clients should buy, what is it that I should show. And all of this right now is in flux, and the old parameters are not working anymore, and I think it's high time that we all go back and learn and listen. There are so many new voices now out there, and it always starts with the artists, but there are new collectors out there. They come in with a very different agenda. They come in with a very different worldview. And I think it's a worldview that we all sorely need because we're right now a little bit in the process of destroying our world. 
And that is what's happening. Yeah, there are very wealthy people who only talk about money and they buy a lot of art. That has always been the case. I cannot think of a historical point in time where art was not bought by wealthy people. That has always been the case. At the same time, I don't think there has ever been a time where art has been accessible for not so wealthy people. And that's also happening right now. So I feel, again, what I said earlier, right now I think it's a time for celebration and for conversation and for widening our horizon and learning. That's at least what I'm focusing that, on, right? That's a that's very great. interesting <laughs> point, but would you call it because you said, oh, we are in a new definition of art, but you didn't define it in other way that it's a broader appeal. Am I right? I would say it has to be a definition that has a different point of view, a more inclusive point of view, and a point of view that isn't so much looking to our European history. What that new definition is, I cannot tell you because I think right now we're all in a process of searching. And that I don't think is a bad thing. As a collector, can I help you maybe? You will help me to tell me if I'm right or wrong because you know, it's easy to speak in terms of popularization of art, okay? meaning a broader appeal it's fine, it's, and it's overdue in terms of diversity. But in terms of popularization, I'm not sure, and this is getting to the core of the debate, which is the future of the art market, because we're gonna have two different views between Suzanne and me. Because she will speak about popularization of arts, and I will say that art is not elitist, it has never been, mm -hmm. but there's one thing that is always striking me, you know, a movie like The Square, the movie that was supposed to speak about the art market, won the Golden Palm in Cannes, got 10,000 lines in every magazine in the world. The total revenue of that movie after five years around the world was $40 million, okay? So it is supposed to be elitist because nobody goes to watch it. Barbie does a billion and a half in one month. So do we have to go to Barbie to broaden the appeal of the arts, or do we have to agree that art is about making us think differently, or maybe starting to make us think? Because the society, the way it's structured, is about not making us thinking, just giving us impulse, you know, a little bit of uh, adrenaline here, a little like on an Instagram, a little compliment there, a little this or that, or does it have to push us outside of our comfort zone? And the problem is that there's only a minority of people, it doesn't matter now or previously, there's only a minority of people that like to be challenged and put outside of their comfort zone. The same about dressing differently, about eating different food, about going on holiday somewhere else than the Hamptons, and so on, and so on, and so on. So it's simply about being different. So me, I'm defending the art that pushes people to go outside of their comfort zone. And the one that you're broadening the appeal, because when you're defining it to yourself, oh, one thing is sure, I don't want the definition, the Eurocentric definition of the past. This makes me think, to be honest and to be very blunt, about the kind of thing, the movement I hear in politics against the institutions. All I want to be is that this institution, the way it works, doesn't work anymore. This is called populism. 
simply populist. I think there's room for both. I'm not saying the artist should be making work that everybody loves and that takes three seconds to understand. And if anybody knows anything about my gallery, they also know that my program stands for the absolute opposite of all of this. We have never shown what everybody wanted at the time. That's the reason why I also am not having a gallery in Hong Kong, Zurich, London, and who knows where. I have a gallery in LA. Yet, I would not have the opinion that what I do as a gallerist is simply because I do it, quality, and what other galleries are doing is simply not so great, or what other artists are doing. There's room for everything. You know, if somebody likes conceptual, intellectual, political work that derives from a long Western European tradition, they can fall in love with that and they can follow that. What I fundamentally find problematic, and that all of that is actually breaking up right now, is that our past has been defined by these parameters of quality and the people who set the parameters of what good art is and what not so good art is happened accidentally to be the people who were also always in power. And all of that is breaking up. And with social media, everybody can participate in the conversation. I am not saying we need to say what everybody has to say is the new standard now, but I think you can have a more interesting conversation if you have more voices participating. And that is what's happening right now. And I think it's long overdue. I would agree with that. I tend to view that way. Alan, I'm curious, with so much information coming at you and your view of like this heavy focus on financialization, how do you make decisions about what you like and what you're going to acquire and live with, especially in this day and age now? One of my mentors, Herman Dallet, who eventually sold his collection to the MoMA, an extremely important conceptual art collection, he said, you know, the difficulty with um, contemporary art is that you need to clean yourself up of fashion. So it's a continuously a mental exercise about saying, oh, this is what everybody likes, this is what every gallerist is throwing at me, mm-hmm. and this is what I need to clean up, okay? So it's the same as going to a shopping mall. You know, it's about, will I go for the same T-shirt as everybody? But everybody wears it, so, you know, I'm going to look cool with that T-shirt or those shoes or whatever. So the first effort is really a mental exercise to clean yourself up. Where I clean myself up very much is in the museums and the biennials, which means I start from there, okay? So I do a lot of them because those curators, very often, they know their job. They've been studying for a long time. They do more research than me. They visit more studios of artists than me, like some galleries do, except the galleries, they've got to bring to the fair what they will sell because they paid fifty to $70,000. They have no choice they must show what will sell. Not sometimes what they like, what they sell. I see it, for example, here from my European colleagues. All of them are sometimes conceptual galleries. They bring only paintings in New York because they say, you need to bring paintings to sell. Mm-hmm. So it's fashion, 
Okay? So the first thing is cleaning up myself by going to biennials and things. And I'll give you an example. After leaving this, I'm going to meet Pepon Osorio, who I discovered at New Museum, this fantastic exhibition on the first floor of the New Museum. And I will probably buy one of the work that is currently in the museum. Okay? And, it, you know, it's a different way of approaching, but we need to resist the market. Mm-hmm. And Megan, I'm sure that that's an issue when you're advising your clients. Like, I was wondering um, two things, how you guide when you have questions about ultra-contemporary and if you have more than you can even work with. Like, do you have to set a cap on who you work with and make decisions about what their goals and intentions are? I do have to set a cap because there's only so much capacity you have just to serve the people who are relying on you. So... I do set a cap, and it usually has to do with their goals. But I think that for myself and for other advisors that I know, people come to me because they sort of have a sense of how it is that I work, how I run my business. And with some conversations, you discover what their goals are and whether your goals meet up. I don't tend to get or attract that collector who says, I want to buy things and sell things and I want to make money in the market. That's like not my guy or not my girl, right? They just don't come to me. It's more people who want to learn, people who are curious, or people who know a lot but who want to work on refining their collection, expanding it in certain ways. And so to what Suzanne and Alain were just saying, Continuous learning is one of the foundations of my practice. It's what I also tell all the staff who work with me. It's the thing that we have to always be doing. It's easy, especially when you've been around as long as I have been, um, to sort of sit back and rely on those things that you feel that you know. And you make certain assumptions, right? And so experience might inform how I advise But I try to approach every biennial, every exhibition, every art fair, every auction season with a certain amount of, and maybe this is what you were saying, cleansing yourself, Ellen, a certain openness and almost pretending at naivete. Because then you are actually allowing yourself to look at something for the first time and being more open to it and trying to look at it through the lens of the collector whose goals you're looking to meet, right? So it's not about me or what I like or what my taste is or what my biases are, anything like that. It's really about me putting me away Mm -hmm. and looking through their eyes Mm -hmm. and trying to find the things that will make the most sense for them. Do you think a lot of that comes from your museum background and having worked at a museum and understanding the need for curiosity and openness? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm constantly learning. And I do, as I said to you earlier, I have a podcast about art books. And so once a month, I interview an author who's written a new book about art that I find compelling. And it forces me to read. And I was talking to a colleague recently, and I said, you know, I read a book a week. And really, that's been since the pandemic. I mean, I had this stack next to the bed of all the art books that we all get. I was reading a book a week, and it's a habit that I have kept up. Now, some of them take longer than a week, but I'm basically, you know, I have two or three going at a time. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous amount Mm -hmm. of just learning and absorbing, but a practice that maybe I fell out of a number of years ago. And so constantly learning and constantly researching in order to make more informed decisions for my clients is, again, the foundation of our practice. I think it's what we have to do. Going back to what we said in the very beginning, what's changed and the volume of information that comes, I think that's where it gets tricky. 
because you have all this coming in and how do you create, you know, for yourself a prioritization about what you're going to look at and pay attention to? I would like to add something to that because the amount of information has so incredibly increased, of course, the act of filtering or curating or selecting from this mountain of information has also become much more important. And there are so many different ways how you can go about it, and that I find very exciting. Again, I think a fundamental change and I see that everywhere. I see it in the institutions. I see it sometimes in the private collections. I definitely see it in the programs that galleries show that there has been a shift away from I go by standards of what I have learned, what quality means by a few experts in the art world who define that or... Um, to a much more um, acute awareness of inequalities that have long persisted in the art world, inequalities that have long persisted actually in our society, and that there is somehow all of a sudden now, and it's perhaps difficult to understand for people that this was not there before the pandemic, that there's a, a new consciousness about what, at least amongst galleries and museums, what is our responsibility in terms of providing a aesthetic experience to our audience? Is it okay that I simply say, well, I'll show whatever I like, or I'll show whatever I think is great, or is there more? I mean, museums definitely are in the process of looking very hard of what is actually our role and whom are we responsible, whom are we responding to and what is our obligation here? And I think that kind of questioning about what is it actually that I'm showing and presenting and is there such a thing as a responsibility to my audience that has now also spilled over into what a lot of galleries are doing. And some people might think this is opportunistic. Why is a gallery that has never cared about those issues all of a sudden doing this? My point of view is the more people are doing it, the better. I don't care where they're coming from and what their thinking is. I think we are in a very exciting time where people are having those thoughts, where they're thinking, what I'm showing, this creative output that I'm showing in this cultural context should have some sort of connection with the makeup of the audience and where they're coming from and what experience they can actually relate to. I think that's a very important change that's happening right now and that I very much welcome. That's great. Just to pivot a little bit, you know, I'm kind of fascinated with the rapid expansion that's happening in LA and there seems like there's so much energy there and a lot of big names coming in. But you were commenting the other day about how you feel like each different size of gallery can play a role in an artist's career and kind of like that there's room for everyone in the art ecosystem, even though I know yeah. there's a lot of competition. Right. Maybe you could talk a little bit about yeah. that. Well, as you probably future. all have gathered, I like to have a pretty positive outlook on things. But I think this ties very much into what you said, Elaine. 
because the art market has grown so hugely, there are some galleries who have grown enormously, and there's always this talk about that the biggest galleries are eating up everybody else and that all of this has turned into this super corporate business and all of that. All of that is true, and all of that is, of course, problematic. I do see hope, because I'm a hopeful and optimistic person. I do think that sometimes people get overwhelmed and they forget that the art market is not a machine or a beast that does whatever it does. The art market is us. And I think the, the crucial pinnacle of the art market is actually the artist. So if an artist is put in a position where they're being told you can only succeed if at some point you go with the five biggest galleries, we all know who they are, then that, of course, creates a very difficult situation for the rest of the artists who will never get to that point and also very much to the art buyers who will never be able to afford those prices. And most of all to the rest of us galleries because we will be then condemned to basically do the expensive work of building the careers and once there's money to be made, the artists get picked, like we're the plum trees ready for the picking and the money is being made somewhere else. I think we're, again, at a very interesting point in time where some collectors are realizing that maybe it was a revolutionary act to buy a work from Hauser and Wirt 10 years ago. Is that really that revolutionary right now? In the same way that maybe you're super cool Prada outfit from 20 years ago was really cutting edge. If you buy it now, is that really so cutting edge? There are more and more artists who are realizing every gallery at every stage can actually bring something useful to my career. This very young gallery that will never be able to pay my production costs can still connect me with a young audience that is at the very cutting edge of the tomorrow conversation. The mid-career gallery can be maybe the gallery that I grew up with, that I trust the most, that I can cry my eyes out when my partner leaves me and they will always be there for me. <laughs> the mega gallery could perhaps be that gallery that pays if I should be selected to have the US pavilion in Venice. They could swoop in and pay the production costs for that. So more and more artists are realizing that perhaps it doesn't have to be this either or situation. And the artists are the ones who have the power to negotiate that. And more and more artists are actually doing that. It's the same for collectors. Perhaps, you know, you get your ego tickled to the core that the senior sales director of Gagosian actually talks to you. Perhaps you find it also once in a while interesting to talk to a very young gallerist that nobody has ever heard of, 
and you know they will love you forever. I think we're in a moment where these structures can break up and the art market is big enough, I think, to help most of us. That's great. I really appreciate that. Alan, you want to say something? I'm not sure that there's enough money for everyone, contrary to what you say, because it's very heuristic description. You know, it's everything, love, and... But she's also talking about connections, too. Like, if you don't Yes, money, of course, about connect. connections and the whole thing. But the fact is the following. There was that study of Sotheby saying that the works of art for a million dollars and plus represent 70% of the art market. Mm -hmm. 70%. Are you selling works of art above a million dollars or around? No. no. Okay, so it's not concerning you. So this means that the market is 70% of this. Because we're talking about the market here. We're not talking about the heuristic pleasure of art and the whole thing. We're talking about the art market. But we make the art market. If we all now say we will never ever buy a work of art again, what's the art market going to do? No, we're talking about the future of the art market. So the future of the art market is that concentration is among those players, okay? And the mm -hmm. thing is, what will happen, because this art that you're describing in a very heuristic way is under threat. And that's where we, we end up agreeing, even if probably we don't agree on that kind of art. But that's exactly the same threats. Because that concentration of power among the big players is the evolution. Okay, it's easy to speak about, again, you know, many, many things, but the fact is 70% of the market is 1 million and more. And this is in the hands of probably 25, 30 galleries among, according to Klama Kenju, 45,000 dealers in the world. So as you see, there is probably 40 galleries making 75% of the turnover, which means that you get the crumbles. I'm very aware of Good. getting the crown. So, <laughs> and, and because of that, you think that you have to go to art fairs to meet new clients and meet new other clients than in Los Angeles, which is more interested in bodybuilding and very tight clothing. Happen and to disagree with that. Than culture, okay? Because this is Los Angeles still, okay? I go there sometimes and that's the case contrary to what some people may think here. So you come here or you come to Europe to do that. So you are forced to do the fairs, but you pay the same amount per square meter as the big guys at the other ends. So at the end, you are threatened. And that's what I'm trying to say, is that in this evolution of this industrialization of the art market, if there's not a change, the real art from you or from the young galleries you're describing maybe will not appear because the only thing you will be able to show in those environments will be what pleases people. And that's the danger. That's the challenge for the future. Alan, I do think that's kind of a worst case scenario. I appreciate some of the optimism, so I'm trying to mediate here. Unfortunately, we're out of time now, but I want to just thank everybody for coming and thank our wonderful panelists. I think it's been a lively discussion. We could probably go on for another hour, but thank you again for coming. I really appreciate it. That's all for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please do take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover the podcast. 
Yard Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you.